Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday Show. I'm your host, Tim Miller. I'm here today with my friend, Jonathan Victorious Last. Hello, JVL. Hey, buddy. I brought you here. It was just me on the interview of Brad Thor, but I brought you here because I have a couple of items that really required you here for the intro. And so we're going to get to those for a second. Just sit tight with me for one second. Um, But for the listeners who are coming, Brad Thor is our guest. He is a number one best-selling New York Times thriller offer. Number one. I never got to number one. So two of the three people on this <laughs> show will have been New York Times bestseller list people. That is so cool. And he's done it several, several times, actually. Oh. Uh, he sold 20 million books, which is slightly more than why we did it. And uh, you would see his books at a vacation home near you if you're not a thriller reader. Anytime you're at a vacation home, look at their book list. And I guarantee you there'll be a Brad Thor book there. He's also a member of... Of the uh, Department of Homeland Security's analytic red cell unit. If that doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what will, but we'll talk about that on the pod. I did not know that he about is. Brad. That's fascinating. So just one thing for the guest. Brad, is a, he's a conservative, and he was a prominent figure in right-wing media, not like JVL commie right-wing media, like real right-wing media, in addition to his fiction writing before Trump came along. But unlike others, when Trump came down that escalator, he didn't waver. He didn't bend the knee. He didn't start writing MAGA books with transgender Bud Light swilling bad guys. In fact, he kind of did the opposite, as uh, as you'll hear about. When I asked him how to introduce him, he described himself as a proud anti-populist and Bulwark fan. All right. So I appreciate that very much. Uh, that said, he's definitely to the right of, I think, every guest we've had on the Sunday show. And I think that's a good thing. We're going to need people like Brad to beat back the fascistic threat. We can't just have... Handsome Chomskyite surfers like Adam Brody, though. Thanks for coming we need on. More Adam, people you know? like that. We what if we both. get Jason Miller? Yeah, I don't know, know Jason, Jason Miller. Miller I don't think Jason Miller. You're right. This is what I'm saying. It's you have to. Find, it's challenging. <laughs> I these know. Days I'm kidding. To find a conservative who is also a person of integrity, Brad is that. So anyway, JBL, I brought you here for two purposes. The second purpose is fun. The first purpose, I just I want you to do the school principal thing in case any of the liberal listeners get triggered by anything. What do they need to do? Do not make me pull this car over. Uh, Look, if you go to the triad comment section, which is, my opinion, the single best comment section anywhere on the Internet, it is because we adhere to a very simple rule. Comments should have at least two of the three following qualities. They should be kind, necessary, or true. The best comments are all three. (laughs) Every comment should at least hit two of those. Right. And, you know, be your best selves. Be your best selves. But hey, we'd love to hear feedback, honest feedback, critiques, always welcome. But just be your best selves. Okay. Before we get to Brad, I did want to pick your brain on one other thing and just give folks a little candy. Okay. It's something I've been thinking about all week. There's been a lot of, and I think some of our, some in our, among our colleagues, some maybe even myself, uh, frankly, there's been a lot of concern about Joe Biden recently. And a lot of times these little narratives bubble up at a particular time. There have been columns written about this. David Ignatius. There have been people on Morning Joe. Bill Crystal and James Carville had a great podcast on this topic where pro-democracy, people of good intent are starting to have a little bit of concern about Joe Biden at the top of the ticket. They're starting to get get their undies a little wet, and they're expressing those reservations right now before they feel like it's too late. Uh, there's something interesting, though. I haven't seen any of those for, about the fact that Donald Trump is winning the primary by 50 points. Have there been any Fox News monologues about how this is the moment to stop Donald Trump or 
Ben Shapiro podcasts or, or senators. I Mitt Romney's gone now. Any of the remaining senators? John Thune. People keep telling me about how John Thune is going to carry the torch for the normies. Have, have we heard him speak about that? Uh, we've gotten exactly one, and that's Chris Sununo. <laughs> First of all, you can't write about this because I, in the 15 minutes before we sat down to tape this, had started Friday's newsletter. And, you know, maybe can I just read it to you? Maybe I'll just read I it to you. I read this, but hold on now. Literally, the purpose of me bringing this up to you was that I just kind of wanted to steal a couple of your takes so that I could write about this next week. But you, you're saying you've beat me to it. Right? I've already started writing it. Great and minds. With, okay. uh, you know, Let me hear. So on the one hand, Donald Trump has uh, never won the popular vote, is the first incumbent president to lose re-election in a generation, is twice impeached, is massively unpopular, is currently facing 91 counts of felony indictment. And is a lunatic yeah, Republicans on, the, on his face. Talk about his electability like in these little hush tones. Again, except in Chris Sununu, who goes all the way to the other side. It was like, Donald Trump can't possibly win, right? They, they just, you'll occasionally get a murmur on background about, we are worried about him in the general election. And when Nikki Haley at the debate mentioned that, that he was unpopular, everybody booed him. When you look at the polling on what Republican primary voters think, they think he is absolutely the strongest bet to win the presidency and that he's going to beat Biden in a landslide. On the other hand, we have Joe Biden, who got more votes than anyone who's ever run for president, has this large record of popular bipartisan legislation with extremely low unemployment. America's at peace. Our alliances are strong. And Democrats are fucking desperate to get him off the ticket <laughs> because they think he's going to lose to Trump. And I, you know, in a weird way, I'm not goofing on them. Because I think both parties might be kind of right, because here is here's the depressing dark JVL. I had thought that, that Trump was a coin flip to win the election. I put him as slightly more than a coin flip now. And to not, I don't mean steal the election. I mean, like, just win the Electoral College fair and square. Oh, my God. And I feel this like. This is supposed to be the people's candy. I feel like this is where we are headed. Cornell West is going to run. I'm sorry, Cornell West is going to take a few votes from Biden. Is it going to be a lot of votes? I don't know. Could it be 12,000 votes in Georgia? Sure, sure as shit could. Yeah. And uh, this is this is really, really dark. Here's why I'm actually not so worried about it. Any country that would look at these two and make it a coin flip and be like, yeah, no, no, let's go back to that other guy who killed like an extra 400,000 people in COVID by telling people to inject bleach into them. And unemployment was like sky high under him when he left and the economy was in shambles. And, uh, you know, old, then he, he, attempted was, a coup. And he attempted a coup. Yeah, let's just go back to that. You know what? We fucking deserve it. And I do not believe then that there's anybody other than Joe Biden who would magically turn voters into sensible people. We'll leave it to you to take the candy and turn it into coal. But I, I want to just go back to candy for a second because we're going to have plenty of time to kind of bat around that concept that, you know, we deserve another Donald Trump term. Here's my thing. It's like I keep being told, you know, over on the dispatch, Jonah likes to talk about the closet normals. I Wouldn't this be the moment for the normals to come out of the closet? And it is pretty jarring. And just focusing on that, forgetting the general election, it is pretty jarring that we're standing here four months from January. Mitt Romney is retiring. And, and like, literally, I was on way too early this morning, and so I'm a little bit punchy. And Jonathan Lemire says to me, who is going to carry Mitt Romney's torch in talking about the dangers of Donald Trump? And I couldn't come up with a name. I couldn't come up with a fucking name. There are 49 Republican senators. Shouldn't 40 of them be holding a press conference that's like, guys, 
this is an extreme danger. Like, we are walking into the gates of hell right now. Like, can we put the brakes on this? Shouldn't there be one Fox primetime host? I keep, remember, remember all the stories about Rupert? There was a little spate of people worried about Trump's stories, like, last year. Remember, Rupert's really worried. Rupert's worried. Can't Rupert put one fucking host in primetime that's like, guys, should, should we consider the alternative here? Should we maybe take another look at Nikki Haley, take a walk around the park with her? Nobody's doing that. There's no one left. Hugh Hewitt can't do it. Nobody. Let me throw this at you, Tim. There is a much greater chance that a Democratic senator will enter the general election to challenge Joe Biden and cost Democrats the presidency than there is that a Republican senator will publicly say, I can't support Trump. (laughs) That's just true. Either Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema has a very large chance of actually running for president on no labels. Uh, do we count Murkowski or is she an independent? Because I don't think she'll vote. Uh, no, but I don't know if she'll say it, though. Right? Uh, believe me, I think very few of those senators will actually vote for Trump. <laughs> they'll vote for Biden or they'll leave it blank. But they will all pretend publicly that they're there for Trump. Yeah, I just... I'm just flabbergasted. I hear you. I'm just, it's just gobsmacking. I think, you know, sometimes we just get into our little, and it's like, Tim, are you surprised that they aren't standing up? These people have been cowards for nine years. Like, no, I'm not surprised by this. But sometimes you just got to take the lens back and just look at everything instead of being in the daily news cycle. Maybe kind of like give yourself the men in black pen treatment and think like, how would I think about this moment if I hadn't lived the last decade? And it's like, I think what I would think about this moment is this is fucking insane that there's nobody saying anything like that. All of the premise for all the Joe Biden bedwetting articles, like there's still five months. Like this is our last time. We really should think about this right now. What if he just replaced Kamala? Right. That's yeah, the, are we, yeah. yeah. Right. Like there are these like we still have a little bit of time. Like, you know, we'll stop doing this. We'll get on board at Thanksgiving. But like, I, when we have this window, shouldn't we think about this? Like all of the premise behind all of those articles is true times yeah. a gazillion for Donald Trump. This would be the time for people to be like, guys, I know he's up by 50, but but like, really, really, shouldn't we be reassessing this? I mean, are we sure? about this and either on the practical side about him not winning or hurting the Republican Party, but but frankly, more importantly, on like the can the country survive? Are we sure? But Tim, this is the same thing that we saw with the New Mexico governor's gun executive order, where the Democratic governor does something that is unwise, even though it is in line with general Democratic political leanings. And a whole mess of prominent Democrats and activists even rush out to say, nope, this is bad. You can't do that. When Republicans do it? I mean, do you remember how hard it was to get Glenn Youngkin to say that the Texas abortion bounty law was not something, not that it was bad, but something he wouldn't do in Virginia. And that took months. It took months to get him just to say that. This is the category difference between the two parties and why the sort of both sides journalism stuff is just utterly broken at this point. (sighs) Okay. I'm not on Charlie's pod. I guess those people who listen to this on Sunday. I wasn't on on Friday. We're taping this Friday morning before you write your tryout. So hopefully we gave you some grist for that. I had to get this off my chest. It's a little bit longer than our, our normal intro, but I hope people enjoyed that. It was a good intro, long intro, if you will. Up next... Our friend Brad Thor, New York Times best-selling author, mm. Brad Thor. I hope you guys enjoy it. But first, taking a little acid tongue. Peace, y'all.
and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday Show. I'm your host, Tim Miller, and I'm here today with Bulwark fan. And, uh, you know, that's the most important part of his bio. Uh, <laughs> but uh, also New York Times bestselling author, 22 books, most recently, Dead Fall, which was on the bestseller list. I've only had one book on the bestseller list. We're not going to do a compare and contrast <laughs> on, the, on that. Scott Harvest series, The Man, The Myth, The Legend, Brad Thor, who's coming at us from Paris for this interview. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Thank you, Brad, for coming to hang out. No, it's, it's my pleasure. I got delayed coming in, so I came right in from the airport, right into the apartment, and set up to do this with you. So this is fun. Perfect. Uh, so you can go get a good meal out in Paris after this is over. You'll have earned it. That's gay per- Wait, can we even say gay Paris, or will we get canceled in Florida? This episode won't show. We can say gay Paris on this podcast, for sure. I don't, I, I don't know about <laughs> everywhere, but on this podcast, it's good. That, that is a nice transition to a point that I was going to make. I just want to come clean on this, Brad. I, I'm not a thriller reader, and I think it might be the gay thing. I don't know. You, you're, you're the one who has book signings. I don't know if it, if it stereotypically feels like a lot of gays are showing up to your book signings, but I'm going to suspect no. Uh, you don't have to answer that if you don't want. No, it's fine. So I, that's what I'm going to blame it on. My experience with you was twofold. I feel like I've known you as a Twitter personality, kind of a mm-hmm. conservative commentator Twitter personality. Um, I'm just for any any liberals who are going to get worried about this. He is good. He's an ever-Trumper, so so you know you can calm down. Um, so I was I had experience of you as a conservative Twitter personality, and then I had experience of you as you know when I would Airbnb at the beach, oh, I would see sure. your I would see Brad Thor books, you know, on on the on the table, wow. but I, I hadn't read a lot of them. And so for listeners who are like me, who kind of are coming to you clean, who are not one of the many 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 people about your books, why don't you just give us your kind of origin story for how you got into writing thrillers and then how you started to sort of become a political commentator as well. So I grew up in Chicago, went to a very small liberal arts high school, progressive liberal arts high school called Francis Parker. Uh, Anne H. was a classmate of mine, uh, God rest her soul, who just passed away not too long ago. Uh, Billy Zane was a senior and a buddy of mine, the actor, uh, Green Lantern, Titanic. No, Billy Zane was the Phantom. It was Brian Reynolds was Green Lantern. Yeah, Yeah, sorry, I can mess those two up. Uh, But anyway. We need a JVL on here to correct correct the record on comic book stuff. that out. But like Daryl Hannah, Jennifer Beals, we had a lot of interesting people come out of Francis Parker uh, and go on to Hollywood and, and do neat things in the arts. So uh, I grew up, uh, the arts were something to make you better rounded. They were not a career path. My dad had gotten out of the south side of Chicago with the U.S. Uh, Marine Corps. My mom had been a flight attendant for TWA in the glamour days in wow. the 60s. And she flew Paris, New York, New York, Paris. And I went out to the University of Southern California for college as a business major and hated it. Absolutely hated it. And I took a test that's, I think they call it the strong inventory now. It used to be called the strong Campbell personality test and scored off the charts for writing and publishing and decided that's what I wanted to do. And uh, when I graduated college, I did the, the thing no American had ever done. I moved to Paris to write a novel that had never <laughs> been done by an American now. And uh, I got a couple chapters into it and I quit. I was afraid of failure. What would happen yeah. if I wrote a crummy book and I couldn't get it sold, whatever. And so I had had this idea for a TV show that I wanted to do, a travel show, because I thought travel made me a better American. And I had done a lot of get a backpack, that kind of a thing. So I pitched, I came back from France and i lived in Greece for a summer intended bar. I came back and pitched public television. I've got this idea for a TV show for 18 to 34 year olds go to Europe on a budget because at that time, Rick Steves was like the only game on public television. Mm. And so they loved it. We did it. I was the producer, writer and host. 
And then fast forward, uh, I get married and I'm on my honeymoon and my wife and I are having a drink somewhere uh, in Italy. And she asked me a question, probably you want to ask a potential spouse before you uh, tie the knot. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, uh, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, okay, when we get home, you got to start spending two hours a day making that dream come true. And that became my first novel. What a woman. Yeah, very lucky. Thank gosh for that. Yeah. So I want to get back to kind of the writing process stuff towards the end. Mm -hmm. But so the books themselves mostly are, I, I think you call them faction. It's a lot of stuff that's happening in national security world, foreign affairs world. So talk to us about that, how you kind of got into that world and sort of how that led to you also you know, being kind of a commentator on national security affairs <laughs> and then eventually actually literally being asked for advice from the government about this sort of stuff. And it's funny because, yeah, like so people haven't read a Brad Thor thriller before. It's James Bond, Tom Clancy. It's very international yes, intrigue. Okay. And I try to find something that's happening in the world of kind of geopolitics to act as the background that everything gets set against. So uh, Stephen King once said that you should write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I, I believe that's true. And so I grew up, particularly in the summers, stealing books from my parents. When they would set a book down on the porch at our cottage in Wisconsin, they'd finish it a Clancy, a Ludlum, a Le Carre, I'd steal it and I'd read it. And I always loved these books. And I always knew that if I was going to write a book, that's the genre I'd want to write in. And so that's what I do. And I say faction is what I do because you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. So uh, I think I was one or two, I was very early in my career. I think my first book had just come out when something got put together by the government called the Analytic Red Cell Unit. And it was put together at the Department of Homeland Security. And they realized that 9-11 happened. And as you and I are recording this, and I'm over in Paris, and I'm assuming you're in New Orleans. Yes. So I got this call, and it was like a scene out of a movie. I'm hiking. We were living in the mountains of Park City, Utah at that point in time. And I'm hiking with my dog in a place where I get no bars on my cell phone. And all of a sudden, the cell phone rings, and I get asked to come to D.C. and be part of this program. And so what it was is bringing creative thinkers into D.C. from outside the Beltway to help the government think three or four steps ahead of the bad guys. So it's people like me, Michael Bay, the director of the Transformers movies. Wow. Yeah, it was really wild. And they put us in there and, and had us dream up scenarios. You know, there were points in time where you thought they were giving you clues that they couldn't figure out how to put together. Like if you had a pair of, you know, Air Jordans from like the mid 80s and then you had a train ticket that should have gone this direction and then a cell phone that was bought in Jakarta and all this stuff was in a bag and dropped in a canal in Amsterdam. How might you connect these wild stuff? But being the son of a United States Marine, it was an honor to be asked to serve my country, not by picking up a rifle like my dad did, but by using, you know, my my creative power between my ears. Yeah. And so I was listening to an interview you were doing where you're talking about this, and it's not just the Red Cell program, uh, and, and we might go down that rabbit hole a little bit more in a minute, but also you do a lot of interviews for these books. These thrillers books, you have to speak to people that are in intelligence agencies. You got to learn about how the diplomatic process mm -hmm. works um, in a deep way for, for these books to have a sense of realism for somebody that is, you know, whose dad served but is an outsider. And one thing that you said that caught my attention, you're actually on a of a MAGA podcast. This was a while ago. I noticed the host kind of catch themselves a little bit when you said this. And it was, the deeper I get into this, the more thoughtful and intelligent 
the government works, at least on the diplomatic and intelligence side. So I, basically, you know, what your, your take was, you know, for all of this discussion about all of the incompetence and the lack of trust that we have these days in our institutions, like the more you've kind of dug in and, and interviewed, the more you've kind of been blown away by like mm-hmm. how there's like a lot of competence. This isn't saying the government's perfect or whatever, but you know, just take that wherever you want to take it about how, what your sense is for that, having, you know, kind of dug into these institutions a little bit. So you're you're hitting me very close to home because it's the whole Tom Nichols death of expertise yeah. and uh, the whole populism thing, right? Yeah. Where there's this erosion of trust in institutions. And uh, listen, when I got asked to join the analytic red cell unit, I, that's the most forward thinking and aggressive program I've ever seen the federal government engage in. And I was so proud to be part of it. Um, it was just amazing. They were honestly doing everything they could. There were no holds barred on making sure we didn't have another 9-11. So the deeper I got into that world, whether it was on the diplomatic side, whether it was on the intelligence side, the special operations side, the more books I wrote, the more doors were open to me and the more people I got to meet. And I really do believe that, Tim, that these men and women that are out there doing particularly some of the nation's most dangerous business are some of our absolute best and most committed because they're not doing it for the paycheck. That's for damn sure. I mean, they love what they do, but they're doing it because they believe in the mission. They believe in the people they're serving with. So I found that the deeper I got in, this is pre-2016, pre-MAGA, pre-populism, which has so corrupted so much stuff. Not everybody. I've been proud of some people's behavior and I've been absolutely shocked by other people's. I've actually lost friendships with people who are members of Congress, because I've just said, you know, you're basically, you're an asshole. Uh, This is about an oath to the constitution, not to Mango Mussolini. So I've been shocked on the political end, but I continue to be heartened by the people that I meet who are actually doing the boots on the ground day-to-day stuff that's required to keep the nation moving and secure, keep it going forward. Yeah. That makes me wonder, you know, so then when Trump comes in, you had relationships in this world. The book I guess it's not really surprising, right, that like national security oriented Republicans were kind of attracted to your book. And, you know, as I said, you started doing some commentary. You talked about that on Fox. And so you had these relationships, you know, and then some of them, I think we can can put Congress critters in a bucket for a second and talk about them in a minute. Mm -hmm. But the people that like went into the Trump administration, I always thought this was such a tough question. One of my best friends became the national security advisor. Yeah. So this is what I wanted to ask you. What did you think about that? Right. Because at some level, I thought going in being Robert O'Brien, as we're talking about, is like becoming national security advisor. Yeah. You know, that's one thing. I guess I'd rather have Robert O'Brien there than Corey Lewandowski or whatever as national security advisor, you Uh, know. But then other people, I felt like didn't have as good of a rationalization for going in. And I thought even the Robert O'Briens of the world, you know, over time end up kind of getting corrupted, right? Like you think you are moving Trump to the same world and actually Trump's kind of moving you to the crazy world. So I'm just curious what your thought about both your friend Robert, but also just in general about that concept. Yeah. So I think Robert did a fantastic job. It's interesting. Robert and I were neighbors when I was in college. I mean, we go back that far, which is really interesting. We stood on the roof of my apartment building during the LA riots after the Rodney King verdict, yeah. uh, keeping a watch because we were above an Air One health food store and anything that had a cash register was getting wow. like looted and then burned, which meant our building would have gone up. And so we we're all taking shifts. I think Robert did a very good job. And I think it's because Robert has an ability to put his ego aside. Robert realized his job was there to advise the president of the United States. It was not to not to try to mold him. He here's your menu of options. Uh, here's you rank them, all that kind of stuff. And of course, I don't have top secret 
security clearance. So there's a ton of stuff that I'll never know that happened in the room and that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, Robert saw that job sure. through right to the end. And, uh, you know, look at how scary the Department of Justice was getting right there at the end where they were trying to put Jeffrey Clark in. And I mean, who knows what kind of a, you know, you had the thing with Flynn yeah. where Flynn lied to the FBI and he was found guilty. I mean, he was kind of the original national security advisor. So I, I have to tell you, I would rather see Robert O'Brien do that job. And listen, Robert's a really good guy. He's a deeply religious, conservative, Mormon guy. I mean, he's as honest as the day is long. I mean, you really could not pick a better person to serve in, a, in an administration in any capacity, in my opinion, better than Robert. I mean, he really understands the position. It's not about him. It's about the administration that he's serving. So I was proud of the job he did. Yeah. Well, the other side of that, though, is, you know, you, know, you get after what happened in Lafayette Park. You know, that was terrible. Yes, that was horrible. Yeah. And then obviously you get January 6th. And then it's like, so let's do a little mini red cell program here. But this is about domestic threats, not foreign. How would you feel about that if Trump, God forbid, wins again? Like, what do you do then? Yeah. Can you really go back in and and feel good about serving in that administration? But on the other hand, don't we do we almost need do we need an actual deep state? Uh, they've been imagining a deep state for a long time, but do we need deep state spies to go in there uh, to try to save the republic? I mean, what how do you game a situation like that out? So that's that's interesting. I think it's funny because for the longest time we've heard the left talk about the electoral college and how, you know, it's not fair and yeah. you know, I always remind my friends on the left of two things. I always tell them that the word democracy does not appear anywhere in the founding documents. And then I also love to stick the shiv in and break off the handle on Mitt Romney. I'm like, you know what? Thank God we never got Mitt Romney in his binders full of women. <laughs> Remember what a terrible guy Mitt Romney right. was? And I said, you know, this is this is what happens when we catastrophize politics. It really gets us to a place that all of us took for granted we'd never get there, right? Yeah. The system was going to hold. The courts have done extremely well. So back to your question about, you know, let's say Robert O'Brien, if he gets tapped, does he go back and serve again as a national security advisor? I don't know. I can't answer for Robert. Sure. I think he did a really good job. And listen, Robert's, uh, the Iranians tried Robert in abstentia in, uh, in Tehran for being involved in the Soleimani hit. So he's still under threat from Iran. So he, he sacrificed a lot for the country. I know him personally, and I have the utmost confidence in, in who he is. He's one of the guys, yes, I would like to see if, God forbid, Trump got elected again, I would be able to sleep much better at night knowing Robert O'Brien was there advising him uh, as his national security advisor, straight up. And then if he calls you and he says, hey, I need a, I need a PR advisor to come in. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'd probably last like one Scaramucci. <laughs> one Scaramucci? I, I, okay. Because I can't fluff the guy yeah. and I won't fluff the guy. I mean, and, I, I, and I'm friends uh, with Anthony and, you know, the guy, oh, and the thing about he throws perfect spirals and stuff. That's like Kim Jong-un level. And when they went around the table and they were all Ugh. saying why they were so honored to serve, it's disgusting. We, as a, you know, it's that old line that people get the government they deserve. Well, the fact is the majority of this country does not deserve another Trump administration. We haven't done anything wrong to deserve that. And I hope, I hope it doesn't happen. But regardless of who serves in that office, I want them to have the best people, the most talented people for that job. And what ends up happening, because Trump is such a buffoon, is that a lot of A-list people won't serve. Yeah. And so that hurts the country. That's another reason not to elect Trump, because he can't attract all of the top talent. He can get some talent, but then you get a lot of C and D listers that make Kathy Griffin look like she's an A-lister. Yeah. <laughs> 
because because they 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 want to sniff the throne. They want to get close to power. And some of these people, like the Kraken lady, Sidney Powell, and these people are never, ever going to get near to a White House ever again in their lifetimes. And this was their shot. And so there was that allure. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. And it attracts those remora, you know, that want to just suck on. Well, hopefully. This is like a game theory thing I always struggle with. And I've gone back and forth with many people. And I'm just always interested to hear your different points of view. Because, like, I was kind of of the view that these people shouldn't have gone in and that everybody should have gotten to see the, you know, full Trump. And maybe that would have protected us in the future from taking risks like this and, you know, let Trump do it all the fucking crazy shit he was going to do and not have like John Kelly's in there kind of like sometimes restraining him, sometimes going, you know, protecting him for his worst instincts. Okay. But I actually think that that argument has been weakened yeah. by January 6th, right? Because my theory of the case was once we see the true nature yeah. of the beast, We're gonna wake then up people suddenly. will wake yeah. up. But then we saw the true nature of the beast and not very many people woke up, it seems like. What, yeah. 91 indictments now we're up to, uh, four arrests? I mean, listen, this is this is a this is a cult. And I, I wish I could remember who pointed this out, but all yeah. cults end badly. So I don't want it to end badly for the United States. And I think some of the good people, like a Kelly, like a Mattis, like a Robert O'Brien, who went in and served, mm -hmm. did it out of that sense of service. You know, who wanted to go in and do the right thing for the country, and um, you know, there was that whole thing about keeping guardrails on Trump. But I, I, listen, I've yeah. been exactly where you were too about saying this guy's got to flounder. But I, it's the price of the floundering. Yes, I want Trump to absolutely have his his political career wrecked by his own behavior. Right. But who pays for it in the end? You know, it's the rest of the country. So at some point, there has to be a sense of, yeah, that guy down the street beats his wife, and it's none of my business. But you know, I'm, I'm going to call the cops on that guy. Yeah, uh, it's a that's a terrible analogy. I was <laughs> reaching for something. I'm going to blame the jet lag. But uh, it's, at some point, yeah. you do have to do the right thing. So I have absolution there. But I draw the line at like what Mike Pence did, which was constantly kind of covering for him and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, so there is a line. Like and one I, good day. Yeah, yeah, there is a line there that I think we can say people should be on this side and not on that side. And I just think as good a man as I, I believe Mike Pence is at his core, he's somebody that I think did a bad job in there. What did you think about? So Pence gave a speech recently where he talks about how right now we're in this battle for the soul of the party. Talk about conservatism versus populism. Yeah, conservatives versus populism yeah. and doing a little bit on here about how like actually Mike Pence your your name was on the bumper sticker on the populist side of the war it already happened like mm -hmm. it, it's been it's been going on nine years now yeah. now you want to switch teams and that's fine I'm just curious your take on this obviously you fall on the more traditional conservative side in this are you as uh, pessimistic was maybe me and JVL about that I mean I, I'm basically of the view that that war is over and that like maybe in a generation or something that the party might turn back over. But, but for the foreseeable future, the populist side is one and the old classically liberal side of the Republican Party is dead. Where do you kind of fall on that discussion? Charlie says the same thing. Charlie thinks we're a generation away from okay. from shaking this. I won't try to take that from you. Everybody deserves a little bit of hope. A you little know? bit. If it was JVL, I know he'd be going real, real dark on me and, and trying to do that. <laughs> Listen, I think populism is a cancer. And uh, Donald Trump is a demagogue. And going back to even Cleon of Athens, 
the founders were concerned about demagogues. Uh, in fact, there's a reason that uh, George Washington, he was very involved after he left office, particularly right after when a new president was being elected, because he was very worried that after his term, and particularly after the Revolutionary War, that we were a very weak country that could be taken advantage of by a demagogue. So the perils that a nation can face at the hands of a demagogue, uh, we've known about ever since our founding. So I don't know how we weed that out. And I think social media is the one thing, obviously, the founders could never have seen coming. These people have isolated themselves in the silos where they're only talking to people who think like them, and they're only getting their news that people feed in from Newsmax and OAN and that kind of stuff. And what we also have is people who know better. Sarah does her triangle of doom thing and everything. But there's this whole thing where if we were better able to reach these people with truth, you would hope we'd have a better outcome. But these are also people that are rushing out to take ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because they didn't trust the COVID vaccines. <laughs> I, I just don't know that some of these people are persuadable, enough of them. And it's crazy to think that the next election could come down to 50,000 votes in a handful of counties. That kind of people getting in their own silos on social media is something I wanted to ask you about, actually. Because I think in a weird way, you, in theory at least, could be uniquely positioned to kind of be a person that has an ability to slowly help a couple of people tiptoe away from the abyss. And I say this because... Not entirely, I assume, but, you know, you'd built an audience that had a lot of conservative readers. And, I, and I, so I assume that you had Trump voters. Liberal ones, too. Yeah, yeah, Liberal, yeah. I would never open a delicatessen and hang a sign that says no blacks, no Jews, no gays. I, I am open to everybody. Of, of course, of course. Everybody. I just mean by the nature of your career. I, the material attracts, yes. There's certainly been, let's just put it this way. Some people that voted for Donald Trump read your books, and that's that's a good thing. We don't want people totally siloed. And my point is that the, those of us who come from the pure political world, like the MAGA voter is a lot of times going to point their finger at us. It's like, why for RVAP, our whole campaign was based around real people explaining why they weren't voting for Donald Trump? Because Donald Trump voters don't want to hear from fucking D.C. consultants telling them what to do. All right, we're, we're literally the worst possible messengers. And so... Since you are kind of like this writer and, and you're a writer of thrillers and you kind of commentated on on politics, like in some ways, maybe these folks will listen to you. And so anyway, I'm just curious, like, have you had any experience from that? Have you had readers say, screw you, Brad, I'm never reading you anymore? Have you had people been like, man, I, I kind of appreciated hearing your perspective on this because my whole world was all MAGA people? Anyway, what what's your experience been on that? So I think if Andrew Breitbart came back from the dead, he'd be shocked to see what his site has turned into, to be honest with you, uh, you know, with the influence of Steve Bannon there and everything. Breitbart had a great line, which is politics is downstream of culture. You say that all the time, all the time. Politics is downstream of culture. And it's true. So I'm an entertainer. So my job, first and foremost, is to entertain my audience. Mm -hmm. But if you close one of my books smarter then I think I've done my job as an American. If you're asking questions, and I'll give you an example. And I know we're going to talk about the new book towards the end of the podcast, yeah. but I actually put into the new book one of the things that I'm most concerned about politically, which is this siloing. So I actually have a part of the story that's about, because I say this all the time, any chance I get, that the Russians, the Iranians, the North Koreans, and the Chinese love to push on all of our cultural fractures mm -hmm. here. There are pressure points that they can push on to turn us against each other. So if you're in a Facebook group, if you're in your silo, your guard is down because you think everybody thinks like you. So when the bad guys try to inject disinformation and things like that, 
you are highly susceptible to it. You don't have antibodies to it because right. you're just trusting every, it's like, you know, the old guys that used to forward every email they got without check, too good to check sort of a thing. So and it literally happened. There was that fake Tennessee Republican party account. Everybody thought it was the real Republican party. It was the Russians. Yeah. And I live in Tennessee and I used to spar with those assholes. Oh, I hated those guys. And I said, this can't be. So I don't want to turn people away from my books, okay? Sure. It's an interesting phenomenon because during Barack Obama, the right was all united. You know, we didn't have all of this infighting and all that kind of stuff. And if you were right of center, you were welcome on Fox. Yeah. But then stuff happens and it's a different world because people are narrow casting. They are – it's the same thing with, the, you know, the New York Times firing conservative people because the newsroom, the young 20-somethings get upset there. It, it, it's the danger of fan service, right? So you want to be very, very careful. And like I said, I try to put in issues that I think liberals should be concerned about independence, Republicans, be you a MAGA Republican, be you a, you know, a Jeb Bush Republican. Right. I think that when, when al-Qaeda targeted Twin Towers, it wasn't because it was full of Republicans. Republicans. And if they ever come back and try to hit the subway system, it's not going to be because it's full of Democrats. They're not going to say, let me see your voter registration. And they say, oh, you better take the bus today. They were out to kill Americans. So I think regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, you should want a healthy functioning democracy. We don't have a healthy functioning democracy now. I mean, you've got guys like Tommy Tuberville, you've got Rand Paul, I mean, doing stuff that you know, a decade ago, even we would have thought was even just as outrageous as it is now. But we should want America to do well. So, yeah, there's a reason they come for the writers and artists first, right? When they take yeah. over, they're out to do the purges and stuff. It's because we do find clever ways to get those messages across and stuff like that. But uh, again, I'm trying to write a, an entertaining book, but also warn people of stuff outside the fiction that is a clear and present danger. Generally, like when you are out doing the book sending, are people do they give you feedback about your non-book stuff? Are they like, I saw you doing this? Or, you know, Every day on Facebook. Every day. I mean, you do, well, not the non-book stuff. I mean, you'll get people that say, oh, that's interesting. Like I created something in DC called the Commodore Yacht Club, where there's this whole crazy conspiracy that the Russians spun around this thing. And it's built on pylons, okay? There's no basement. It was kind of Comet Ping Pong showing, you know, the pizza place and the whole yeah. Pizzagate thing. It was making fun of that sort of a thing and right. showing how stupid it is to fall for this stuff yeah. because people are lazy. OK, I, I don't think so many people that say, uh, is it Jordan Kepler for The Daily Show yeah, yeah, that Clapper, goes out yeah. and interviews all the Trump support? He's fantastic. He's fantastic because it's like the fact. So I like to play with that stuff a little bit in the books, but not I don't want to harm. I, I don't want to tease people. I don't want to beat people over the head with it. I get it. Exactly. Exactly. I, I want to show, hey, this stuff is dangerous and put it in a good white knuckle thrill ride. And if I can do that, then great. That's a bonus yeah. for me as an American. Well, we, we should almost do like a test. I don't know. You're willing to do the red cell program. Maybe we need like a never Trump or red cell unit. I feel like that in some ways you're just a softer way to just kind of casually get like a, just a dose of sanity, right? Uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to dump somebody. Have Sarah hire me for a focus group. Yeah, have Sarah, that's what I'm saying. Because if you dump, if you, we dump the Charlie Sykes podcast straight into these people, you know, they're just going to get pissed. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, maybe through, maybe we need some short stories, some, some little metaphors. Well, it, and what's the old Christian thing? Go to where they're at and bring them to where they need to be. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, exactly. I, I can do some parables. And I also think that one of the things we do at our own peril as moderate centrists. I mean, I've gotten a lot. I've always been socially inclusive. Yeah. My conservatism was always small government and spending yeah. like, with tons of gay friends. I, I mean, 
I, I just don't care about that stuff. I, I think America is the place where you should be free to do what you want to do. The writing program in USC, you met you met gay people. That's that's well, surprising. I I lived in LA. I lived <laughs> off campus. I mean, I came to Paris. I'm staying in the Marais. Yeah. You can't get you can't get more dead center gay and gay Paris than the Marais where I am now. So I think globalization did leave a lot of people behind. I think we as a nation were not thinking what happens when these products are being made overseas for less money and these jobs no longer exist for these people who've been in some of these jobs, their families generationally. You know, we have a big problem with recruiting in the military now because some of the grandfathers and fathers who have been in the service or the grandmothers and mothers who would normally be encouraging the next generation to sign up are saying, ah, they're too woke now. Don't do it. So, you know, we we do things that we may think are good for whatever reason, but we're not good at looking at full implications of what might happen with these things. Yeah, that actually takes me. So I want to kind of go around the horn a couple of political issues that sort of overlap with themes in your books. One of them is what you're talking about right there is this uh, this kind of idea that the military is getting too woke. You know, everybody kind of chimes off on poetry on ships. Yeah, there's poetry on ships now. Watch (laughs) out, you know. China's going to eat our lunch. <laughs> and the Navy might go gay. You never know. But, uh, you know, then there's some more serious discussion. I mean, Millie obviously discussed about you need to care about white rage. You know, in that hearing, uh, that created a lot of white rage in response to that comment. Yeah. But I, I don't, the military isn't my world, right? So you talk to a lot of military folks to do prep for these books. So I'm just curious your take on that critique. Is there anything to it? Is there nothing to it? You know, where do you fall on that? So I talk to a lot of people that don't like it, that are career military people. They don't like this. People, by their nature, are resistant to change, right? right. People don't like change. And so this is pretty dramatic change. In fairness, there are a lot of military people that liked Don't Ask, Don't Tell and didn't want to change that. And that turned out just fine. See? Right, you know. It turned out just fine. I, and I was always with Dennis Miller with this. It's like, I don't care who you sleep with. As long as you're in the foxhole and you know how to run your rifle next to me, that's all I care about. Right. It's all I care about. What you do in your bedroom is your business. And I've always been that way. I, you know, if two people want to be married. What do you care if it's two men, two women? In a country that prides itself on freedom, we should not want to limit the freedoms of other people. But I think what you're seeing, again, I talked about the globalization and jobs for certain groups going away. I think, again, with not changing, uh, we we have to change, though, if we want an all-volunteer force, right? Right. We have to go to where these people are and bring them in uh, and encourage them to serve. I remember watching a piece on a Marine recruiter, and the Marines are fabulous. They meet their numbers all the time. And one of these Marines was talking to a kid like in Compton or something like that. And, oh, why would I want to be a Marine? And he's like, when I pulled up, I heard you listening to Shaggy. Did you know Shaggy was a Marine? And the kid's like, no way. You know, and so that was going to where that particular kid was at, right? Using pop culture, all that kind of stuff. So I think that as our numbers go down, we have to be creative with how we recruit. And I think it's important. And I think if you don't like change, I'm sorry, life has changed. It's going to constantly be changing. You know, sometimes you just need to step back and think about common sense a little bit in this discussion. And it's like, okay, who are they recruiting, right? They're recruiting teenagers, mostly, right? Mm -hmm. And folks that are in their early 20s. And so, sure, I and mean, there, there's certainly some young MAGA kids that really don't like all the woke stuff, and maybe it would turn them off. But like, if you are 19 right now, and you're thinking, do I want to join the military or not? Like, do you think that poetry on ships is going to be the thing that makes your decision? Or do you think maybe the thing preventing people from being in the military is that there's just not a lot of pride in what like the military has d- done the last quarter century. Right? If you're 19 years old, all you've experienced is 
the the back half of the Iraq War, all of the problems with that war, you know, all of the deaths that you've you've now seen the retreat from Afghanistan was handled poorly. Now, this funding of Ukraine, which I want to get into next, that seems to be kind of working, but that hasn't been our boots on the ground, right? And so you right. look at this and, and you're like, why would I? These guys are going to send me into fucking Fallujah for an unclear mission, right? Don't we think that the recruiting problems has been more based on the way we've been waging wars the last two decades and not, you know, whether, you know, there are a couple of generals reading critical race theory pamphlets? I can't imagine that you, with Iraq and Afghanistan going on, that you would ever walk into a recruiting station not thinking I could end up over there. I mean, right. you, there's no way you could not have that be part of your process. So it's interesting. So particularly the nationalist populist right does not like the stuff that the Department of Defense is doing. They're so woke and all this kind of stuff. Yet you guys are eroding one of the prime reasons to serve is, is patriotism and the right. pride in serving an institution and being part of something greater than yourself. And so it's kind of tearing it down at both ends, which is which is unfortunate, because even if you got rid of all the wokeness, this is the problem. This is why culture wars are so stupid is because each side thinks they're losing and there's no way to tell when you're winning. That's the problem. There is no end to the culture war. It's always going to be something else that pops up. I mean, it is the biggest waste of time and energy, to be honest. Yeah, take a W. Exactly. Megan Kelly yesterday was tweeting, complaining that the U.S. Open tennis final was woke because there were Moderna ads and they sang America the Beautiful instead of the national anthem. And I was like... America and the Beautiful and pharma ads are woke now. Like this is like, like what is even? What are we fucking talking about anymore? I, you know. Anyway. Yeah, and I happen to be friends with Megan, and I like her <laughs> a lot. And I just don't know: is it fan service? Is it serving that audience, giving them that red meat that they want? There was just some big thing, and I I've known Ben Shapiro for years, and there was just the thing where they were saying that the the whole rape thing ought to be treated as seriously as E. Jean Carroll's claims. Uh, uh, is uh, it Danny Masterson? Who was it that they were comparing it no, to? No, I think they were comparing the fake. Obama gay story to E.J. Right, Carroll. that's what it was. Yeah, that you dismantled on the bull. Larry Sinclair. Exactly. Yeah, which is, I mean, the E.J. Carroll thing has been said. She had all those contemporaneous accounts. She told people that it's been adjudicated in front of a jury and all this stuff. I just think that the hardcore MAGA right just wants to be entertained. They don't want to be challenged. They want to be told that what they're thinking is right and that the way they see the world is right and everything's terrible. Listen, nothing fuels the clicks like rage. Uh, you get people angry to get them out to the polls and you get them angry to keep tuning into your show. I mean, we've joked around about that Fox logo, that bug being burned into TV sets because people just don't turn them off in the retirement homes and other places. So it may take a generation not only to get the poison out of the younger bloodstream, but to get some of these older people. uh, I I don't know that you'll ever reach the older ones. I think there's a lot of them that unfortunately will never get back to sanity. Let's talk about Tuberville for a second. And, you know, I just want to put a quarter in the machine like rant about him first, but a bit Secondly, it, I don't know if you've had any conversations with military folks. The thing I don't understand is why aren't even conservative military folks more mad at him? I, I mean, like, isn't there frustration that we can't go about the business of the country right now? We've had three service heads come out and say as much. So, I mean, you've got people in there. So there's at least on the professional military side, there is a history of not getting involved on the political side, not saying anything, you know, it's that whole thing, you know, Kelly didn't say anything even after he left the Trump administration, Mattis didn't say anything. And, you know, we really could have used a lot more of that, but there's that, there's that tradition there, that that is a kind of a sacred thing. You don't cross that line. 
listen, Tuberville's a jackass. This is the problem we have in this country. There are a lot of kind of norms and uh, traditions that we would follow. And all it takes in this case is one guy like Tuberville to screw everything up. So I think we're learning now that as much as we wanted to trust people to operate in the best interest of the country, we're going to need to rejigger some stuff in Congress because the fact that Tuberville can hold up all of this stuff and can imperil the nation's readiness and national security, it's terrible. And the guy really is, and it's not a very uh, deep pool of competition. I, I mean, well, it's actually the pool's not deep, but it's very crowded at the shallow end. I mean, he really is one of the dumbest guys in Congress. He's not the, I, I don't know if we could award him the dumbest, but there's a lot of competition for the title. It is a competitive category, yeah. but I, I think he's even got Marsha Blackburn by the nose. Uh, my senator, Marsha Blackburn, yeah. Boxer rocks. Yeah, yeah. I forgot you're in Tennessee. I moved 10 years ago from Chicago. You know, I've had, just by coincidence, a couple of Tennessee folks on this show, Gloria Johnson, who's running against Marsha Blackburn. And I get this question about Louisiana, having just moved here. At times, do you ever feel like, man, shit is getting actually to a point where the laws that are being passed are, are a little bit too much to tolerate? And I do, what, what's your take on just kind of the local... You know, because for a while, a lot of this stuff was confined to national politics, yeah. right? And I, and I feel like really it's been the last two years, not that there weren't always dumb bills and then fucking every state, right, or blue, right? But it's been particularly yeah. acute about state legislatures advancing really far-right cultural policies. What What's your feeling about that, like just being around Tennessee? Is there any backlash to that starting to happen among your, you know, community? Uh, no, not really. Not really. I mean, if you've got a daughter who may need to get an abortion, it's an issue now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if you've got particularly gay or transgender children, it's an issue now. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. So, you know, we left Chicago because the violence was increasing and my taxes never decreased. They kept going yes. up. So I felt right. like I was living on an island because I'd have to tell the babysitter, don't take the kids to the beach. Too many gangs down there. Don't go to the zoo. Too many, too much trouble there. So I was paying more and more money for a bit of property, an area of Chicago that I could enjoy. It was just getting swallowed up by yeah. all the bad stuff in Chicago. So it's like, what's my alternative? I moved to Tennessee for more freedom, particularly uh, no taxes and and. Very very light hand on business and things like that. So what's my choice, Tim? Where am I Where am I going to move if I leave Tennessee? Where am I going to strike a balance? Yeah, now Tennessee's coming for your freedoms from the right. Can't find an oasis. They're like book banning and stuff. I mean, it's, it's nuts. And I certainly don't want to go to Florida under DeSantis. So we've gone nuts. Colorado's a nice balance. I wish I could live there. My home state, Jared Polis, is a nice centrist governor. Uh, Spencer Cox doing all right next door in Utah. Something in the water in the Mountain West, maybe. We used to live there. I, no, I feel this way, too. I, sometimes our liberal listeners get mad at me. They're like, how could you have moved to Louisiana? Da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, first, you know, <laughs> let's, let's let everybody make personal decisions for themselves. But, you know, I came from Oakland. We had two bullet holes in our house. Ooh, I didn't know that. And the prices of a different neighborhood in the Bay Area are just not on the level of what a podcaster can afford. <laughs> You know, and so I, you know, I like California. I don't have anything against it. I loved living there for a few years, but, you know, everybody's got to make decisions. I'm not really that interested in living in the suburbs. I was able to move to a place that, you know, I mean, Orleans Parish went 85% for Biden. So it's not like exactly, you know, mm -hmm. like I moved to become David French's neighbor out there in the AR-15 church. David's, David's in my neck of woods. Yeah. Anyway, you got to find balance and all this stuff. Yeah. One more thing before we get into book stuff. I've heard you said you don't want your kids to be on TikTok. TikTok's another one I just struggle with. I'm on it. I feel like I have to be just not my party. because of the nature of my work, right? Yeah. I'm also not really that worried about the Chinese spying on me. I'm like, what? What are they going to know that I'm interested in basketball and gay <laughs> and pop culture divas? <laughs> like, like, okay, all right, Chinese, now you got me. But anyway, what what would be the case against it? How, how worried are you about it? 
So I thought it was important for me as somebody who's in entertainment, kind of the one foot in entertainment, who's also concerned about politics and the direction of the nation. I thought it was important to take a very public stand against TikTok and the dangers that they pose. And so uh, my kids weren't allowed to have it. They're adults now. They don't have it. They chose not to have it. So I wasn't worried that the Chinese might be gathering information from my kids per se, but I was concerned about what could the Chinese push informationally. You know, you control the medium, you control the message, right? So if they want to be doing stuff that is kind of contra to our interests in the world or something like that, could that stuff make it into the feeds? And I've just never been a big social media guy anyway. That was an easy pick. Just it's the CCP's uh, social media site. So I'm like, okay, that's one less one I got to worry about as a parent. Now I got to focus on Facebook and Instagram. So Fair. So the most recent book, Deadfall, takes place in Ukraine. And your books are really on the news, right? And, and almost even pre-news sometimes, right? You're trying to look into the real national security threats. So people that are reading and are kind of experiencing something that is in relationship with what's actually happening in the world from a national security standpoint. So I want to hear about the book. But first, just wondering if you could just grade how you think that the Biden administration has been doing on Ukraine. I'd say I give them a B plus, to be honest with you. That's pretty good. I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, I'm a big fan of giving them everything they want and then sending backups of all of it. Listen, it's the moral case. If you don't like war, you want this war done as soon as possible. There's a lot of Russian kids who are losing their fathers, wives losing their husbands, just like in the Ukraine. I'm not saying the Russians are having harder. But what I'm saying is, is that from a moral standpoint, we shouldn't want to see anybody else die in this for Putin. I mean, there's like plenty of kids uh, who don't have fathers now on both sides. And it's just it's horrible. So to make that happen, to end this war, we should be giving the Ukrainians everything they need. And they're not going to win it unless they have air superiority, which is why I've been a big fan of giving them the F-16s for the longest time. Uh, The ATACMS missiles we'd hoped would be really good, and the Russians have been good at jamming some stuff. They need a lot more mine-removing equipment. There's a lot more we could be doing for them. And listen, we've now seen that Russia is a paper tiger. The kleptocracy over there has hollowed out their military, so we should want to see a stake driven through their heart. The Chinese would like this to drag on and would like us to keep supplying the Ukrainians with stuff out of our stockpiles. The the Chinese would love that. So this thing really needs to come to an end. We we make it come to an end by just overwhelming the Russians via the Ukrainians. Yeah. I'm taking a B plus, by the way. One of my uh, kind of non-political college friends asked me this weekend, you know, some of them are kind of like, how are you not like, you know, they knew me as a college Republican. They're like, what happened to you? You know, and they're like, do you you like Joe Biden? And I was like, I don't know. I think I'd probably give him a B minus, but that would give him the best grade of any president of my adult life. So sometimes you can just take B pluses where you can get them these days, Brad. You know, there's a lot of Fs out there. Okay, so so we're just going to do a B plus. Speaking of, it's got to worry you a little bit that the top three well, maybe Nikki's passed him now, but let's just say about 75% of the GOP vote share in the presidential primary is for people that I assume you would give their Ukraine policies somewhere between D and F and, and DeSantis and Ramaswamy and Trump. Like, What is your just reaction to that? Wait, you mean, hold on, we're talking about Ron DeSantis? Yeah. Look at each way on the debate stage before his hand goes up to see where all the other votes are? Yeah, that's a, that's a profile encourage. Uh, Listen, I really believe that we should stand up for democracy, particularly in the case of the Ukrainians. I mean, the Russians invaded them. And real quick piece of history that listeners and viewers might not know of, when the Soviet Union broke apart, a third of their nuclear arsenal was in Ukraine. And we begged the Ukrainians, please let us help you get rid of these weapons. We'll help dismantle them. We'll help get rid of them. You can't maintain them and you can't secure them. We were afraid one of those would get 
stolen or more would get stolen and used against our allies, used against us. One could be lit up in New Orleans or Minneapolis or Sarasota, wherever. So the Ukrainians said, yeah, we'll do it. But we want to promise from you that we are never going to lose a, a square inch of our sovereign territory if we give up these nukes. And we said, fine. And they said, OK. And it's called the Budapest Memorandum. Yeah, right. And we signed it. And they said, get the Russians to sign it. And this is in the 90s, yeah. pre-Putin. And so what happens? 2014, Putin goes into the Donbass. And he takes a slice. It was very much, Francis Fukuyama said that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And what Putin did going into Eastern Ukraine is very similar to what Hitler did in Czechoslovakia. I'm going to protect ethnic Germans and Putin's protecting Russian speakers. It's so similar. So this idea that we would not live up to our commitments as Americans, that all we do is kick Putin out of the G8. That's why we have a G7 now is right. because we kicked the Russians out, got a harshly worded letter from the Obama administration and a handful of sanctions. And all that did, as it did with Hitler, when he got uh, when uh, Neville Chamberlain and the Republic of France and fascist Italy gave in on the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, it didn't slake Hitler's thirst. It just empowered him and just encouraged him. So I think a lot of people don't know that part about history, that we promised Ukraine, get rid of the nukes and yeah. we'll make sure Russia never overruns you. Nobody will overrun you. I'm glad you brought that up. I brought up the Budapest Memorandum a lot when the war first started, but you know you can only say stuff till you're blue in the face. But it's it's good to bring that up, re-remind people. But uh, anyway, I got I got us distracted. I'm sorry. I did talk about Tiny D, uh, and uh, and all of a sudden I got away from where where we were going there. So tell us about the book. Deadfall takes place in Ukraine. What's the premise? Okay, so I grew up loving like great World War II thrillers, like Alistair McLean, where Eagles Dare, which is a great movie with Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. And I love Band of Brothers, present day. Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, Fury with Brad Pitt, where they did the whole tank thing. And I always said, I'd like to take my series protagonist. And by the way, if you haven't read a Brad Thor book before, I tell people they're like the James Bond movies. You don't need to have seen any of the previous movies to go right into the theater and see the latest one. <laughs> So what I did with Deadfall is I wanted to have an American aid worker disappear kind of behind enemy lines in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians don't have the manpower or the wherewithal to find her. And uh, so the U.S. decides we can't send a whole team in because then it's going to look to Putin like we've now committed to the war. So we're going to send our top spy in and we're going to let him try to find this woman. And he's got one thing he's got to do. If she's alive, bring her back. If she's dead, kill everybody responsible for it. And so that's what the story is about. So it's set in Ukraine. It's got a lot of cool Ukraine stuff, but it's supposed to be, again, take it to the beach, take it to the lake. It's a edge of your seat, white knuckle thriller. That's that's the goal. All right. This takes us to rapid fire, which is going to be a lot of your book stuff. And so <laughs> for people that do want to just pop right back in to a Brad Thor book somewhere in the series, what I was curious of is which one are you the most proud of? Which one do you look back and think, man, I really nailed it that time? Uh, well, I, I tell, it's like, which is your favorite child? You know, I, they're all I my favorites. I only have one, spend, so it's an easy question for me. But uh, I hear you, you. It's an easy question for you. JVL also names one of his child's favorite, so maybe not the best analogy is for this Flash? podcast. Is that his favorite? Because he talks about <laughs> Flash all the time. So no, it's I not Flash. It's not Flash. Oh, wow. Okay. Sorry, Flash. You're number two. <laughs> so, you know what? I had a reviewer say that what Brad Thor does every year is he scales Everest, but a different face of Everest. Mm -hmm. So it's different technical climb every year. So. Every book I'm excited about, and I, I love them all. I actually cannot pick 
a favorite out of all of them because each oh, one. Oh, come on. I, I can't. How, listen, about, how about instead of favorite then, just that you're like, uh, speaking as. Give you most controversial. No, 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 no. Where you just, you felt like that you were clicking on the writing side of things, right? Okay. Like, and I can just speak for myself. Like I look back, it's 18 months now at my book and I'm like, man, I wish I would have done this different or that different. And I feel like if I'd written 22, that at some point in the 22, I'd look back at one of them and think, you know, I really kind of feel good about my writing in that one. Maybe it's not my favorite story, but that on the writing side, I, I, I did it well. I'll tell you, a couple of years ago, I did a book called Backlash. Okay. And it was unbelievably hard. Scott Harvath gets grabbed by the Russians. They are actually going to render him to their own version of a black site in yeah. Russia. And the plane goes down in Siberia. And I had to write a book about a guy trying to escape the Russians, and there wasn't a team for him to talk to and all this kind of stuff. And I really, really uh, stretched myself as a writer in that book. Yeah. And I was really afraid that the marketplace wasn't going to like it. And it was one of my most popular books ever. So took a lot of risk. That's cool. You know, since you kind of are in this oeuvre, what's another contemporary that you think is really just nailing it? I always like to ask people for other recommendations of other other books. Another contemporary who's just nailing it. I, there's there's a lot of guys. Uh, it could be television writing too, even if you'd prefer that. To. You know, it's funny because I take a lot of inspiration from television writing too. Like yeah. a big Ray Donovan fan. It's oh, just yeah. very very well done. Of course, Billions and Succession are yeah. also excellent. I was a big West Wing fan because of the dialogue. I thought it was very yeah. snappy and and well yeah. written. And I've always been a Mammoth fan, so. My fa one of my favorite movies is Ronin, and oh, uh, yeah. Mamet came in to do the rewrite on Ronin, and it's just so good. Uh, so, but I, there's so many of my contemporaries that are that are crushing it today. Whether it's Jack Carr, I've always been a big Steve Barry and James Rollins fan, although they're not kind of in the same space that I'm in. They're a different kind of thriller, but kind of in that military espionage realm. I, I do like Jack Carr a lot, and he had a lot of success on Amazon Prime with his show that uh, became a real cultural badge of honor to support that show. I thought he rode that wave very well. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people in Hollywood that didn't like it, but it's done very well with other people in the country, and I'm I'm okay with you know, product doesn't have to be for everybody, but I think there's a certain part of the country that's been ignored for a long, long time by Hollywood. So now something does well out of Hollywood that plays right of center. I think that's good. I think there's plenty of space in the sandbox for everybody to play. Sure. So you do kind of trying to look ahead at potential threats. So what's one potential threat national security wise you don't think people are talking about enough when you sort of look out there? Well, I keep coming back to social media. Yeah. Because I do think that's where we are. I, I think at this point, we are our own worst enemy in many senses. I think uh, we are doing, in some cases, irreparable harm to ourselves, to our fellow countrymen and women. I don't want to see another 9-11 have to happen to bring us all back together again and remind us mm -hmm. that we have more in common uh, than, than we are different uh, in as Americans. So that's, you know, I look at the uh, Chinese are, you know, the Chinese are pretty scary. The Russians less so. We've seen the Russians, uh, yeah. the Iranians always have a potential to be a problem. I'm stunned by kind of how Islamic terrorism is just kind of you know, I hate to say it because yeah. tomorrow something could happen. You don't want to jinx it. Yeah. We don't normally walk out worried about, you know, somebody leaving a backpack at a cafe. That that stuff is just and I don't know how to explain it. I don't know. But yeah, so I'm, I'm more worried about what's happening in the interior of the country, uh, us kind of citizen against citizen. Uh, January 6th is one of the most terrifying things yeah. I've ever seen in my lifetime. Those of us who are never Trumpers, uh, who came from a conservative background, I think have done a particular amount of self-searching sometimes. You know, I always look back and think, man, if Donald Trump's election to the presidency changed nothing for you, 
then I'm like, yeah. I don't know, we can't really connect. Because <laughs> like, uh, if, if it at least didn't make you kind of reflect about the state of the movement, but also the country and the democracy. So anyway, I'm just I'm always curious for you, was there anything that in particular that you've changed your mind on or looked back on and, and had a different different vantage point now than maybe you did in 2015? So this is this is something that's weird, and I don't know if our our, our left of center audience is going to fully appreciate this. Uh, but I make no bones about the fact that I was a big gun guy. Mm-hmm. I was a big gun guy. I love to shoot guns. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm from a military family, and so I always liked them, and I liked to buy guns, and I had a lot of guns. And then I watched those assholes show up at the capitals, particularly in Michigan, yeah. walking around with their long guns and stuff like that. And I realized that guns had been so fetishized. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, that's it. And I sold off a ton. Suddenly, the appeal in my my enjoyment of that is kind of a, you sold your own guns. I sold my own guns. I had a lot of guns, and I said this is ridiculous. And I was embarrassed by what I saw at those capitals. That intimidation of lawmakers by bringing firearms like that. I don't care that you're allowed to do it. You know, there's a lot of things we're allowed to do, but is it the right thing to do? Yeah. Is that really how you want to argue your point? Is menacing with firearms like that? So yeah, I got rid of. I didn't get rid of all of them. Didn't get rid of all of them. I still got some. And I love them, but I was just like, ah, I'd gone overboard with how many I had, and that just ended it for me. Yeah, the culture around it just feels unhealthy like, at some yeah, point. I, I no longer enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, I, that one was similar for me. It's funny, because guns has nothing to do with Donald Trump, but it, it does in the way of sometimes, you know, in any group, right, you get caught up in, oh, if that group is part of your identity— there's certain things, certain elements that you have strong associations with, you know, like for you, you mentioned earlier, like I feel very strongly about smaller government or whatever, more freedom, right? And then there are other things you have kind of weaker associations with that you're like, okay, well, this is my team's for this. So I'm going to add that to the list of things that I'm for. And that's really where I was on guns, right? I never was somebody that bought a lot of them, but it was kind of like, well, you know, that's part of the checklist. And so it was really even before Trump, it was really Newtown for me that I was like, I, this is mm. this is crazy. I, I need to change my my thinking about all of this. Um, okay, final rapid fire question. You know, I know that fiction writers don't always like suggestions from other people, but might there be a potential book where Jack Harvath gets assigned to, I don't know, go undercover at a decaying uh, country club for rich people, maybe somewhere in South Florida, and, you know, do the one thing that the country needs, which is kind of take out a potential threat from the inside, you know, who might want to lead the country again in the future. Might that might might made us made a plot somewhere along those lines be interesting for Jack this, this is why specifically I do not take ideas from the outside. <laughs> I do not take ideas. No, no, no. Okay. That is not on my uh, not on my list of potentials. All right. Well, anyway, I'm looking to keep my audience. I'm not looking to shed audience. I'm looking to build audience. I don't know what you're talking about. In case anybody at Simon and Schuster's watching the podcast, I'm a builder. I'm not a shedder. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't know what you're talking. Why that would uh, turn anybody off? Okay. Okay, Brad Thor, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you for supporting the bulwark and 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 what and listening to us. Feel free always to chime in if we if we're getting something right or wrong. And uh, Godspeed on on your work. Oh, actually, one more thing before we say goodbye. I heard on another podcast that you said that you had a dream group that was going to get normies into primaries. Yes. And literally, me and Sarah Longwell did that group in 2019, 2020. It was oh, called Center you? Action Now. It was on the Democratic side. It was under the radar. But the whole point was to get centrists to go vote in the Democratic primary. This was when there was concerns about Bernie. And we didn't tell people yeah. who to vote for. Yep. We weren't, like, putting our finger on the scale for anybody. But it was just like, it was like, hey, 
if you are a suburban mom or dad that is, you know, kind of non-political. Go vote in the primaries. Go out and vote. Like Anybody you want. Yeah, pick whoever you want and, and try to push people in. I think that's such a great idea. And so maybe. You remember the title? I said it should be called primary responsibility. That's good. That's what the group would be called. I'm saying so we have a dormant group out there. So if you if you ever get writer's block. Revive it. And decide you want to get into the political world, you okay. call me and Sarah. Okay? I will. Brad. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Enjoy Gay Perry. And uh, we'll see everybody on Wednesday for the normal, standard, regular, next level debauchery with me and JVL and Sarah. Peace out.